On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Ben Rhodes. I'm Tommy Vitor. Wow. We're, we're, we're switching it Zagging. up. Yeah. Ben, I just wrote down um, football banter. Some of the best games I've ever seen I, in my yeah, life. I, I don't even really know what to say. Um, all I want to say is I want to send love to our listeners in Buffalo, to all fans of the Buffalo Bills. Yeah. Heartbreaking loss. Your 25-year-old quarterback played a perfect game. And lost your defense. Eh, tough down the end, but here's. Patrick I don't Mahomes feel that incredible. bad. I don't feel that bad because they have Josh Allen for a decade, and you have a, my Jets. Took Josh Allen for a Sam Darno before Josh Allen <laughs> draft. So I thought about that this week. Listen, I know non-sports fans just endorse. One of the most fun things in sports is when there's a draft, and uh, some fan base knows the player they took ahead of all the really good ones. Like yeah, the most yeah. famous one is Michael Jordan. Yeah. Not going first overall, but it's the best. It's just like the deepest. Well you never get over it. You never get over it. Never yeah. get out of it. Yeah. Well, Ben, today's show is more action packed than an NFL divisional round game. Oh, it's a transition. I wrote, we're going to spend a bunch of time talking about Russia and Ukraine, including with our guest today, Peter Beinart, uh, who wrote a fascinating piece about how NATO expansion may or may not be a factor in Putin's aggression towards Ukraine. But even more interestingly, how the topic itself of NATO expansion went from controversial to just kind of like unquestioned. Yeah. And, and this is why I like Peter so much, because he is someone who is like, hand up. I made a huge mistake supporting the Iraq war. Yeah. And from now on, I will question every assumption and question all my mistakes. Um, and he does that here and sort of like takes on these these sacred cows. You should check out his uh, Beinart notebook on Substack. Excellent Substack. I've been in the exclusive content. Get out of here. For the Beinart Substack, yes. That, well, literally, we booked him on the show because he yeah. wrote such a great piece on Monday, so it's definitely worth subscribing. Also, uh, we are going to talk about the coup in Burkina Faso, mm -hmm. Yemen, the UAE, the Iran deal, Chile, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, and Havana Syndrome. And finally, we will check in with our friend Boris Johnson over in the United Kingdom, who's quite literally, as we discussed last week, addicted to partying. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to see how day trading is going for uh, Naib Bukele, yeah. the authoritarian president of El Salvador. And then a little more details come out about Mike Pompeo's glow up. Mm. But before we get to the news, uh, if you like leaving your home, uh, Pod Save America is going back on tour this spring, allegedly. Our listener presale is happening now through Thursday. Before tickets go on sale to the general public, you can use the promo code CROOKED for a full list of dates. And for more information, go to crooked.com slash events. It'll be fun to leave the house. I still think we need a world or world tour. I'm uh, down. In part so I can travel. But <laughs> let's, um, let's go throw a party for Boris Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We should do that. That's that an obvious like a garden one. Garden party. Yeah, and then go, go to, to Australia. Yeah. We'll go to McDonald's. Yeah, go to McDonald's. We'll go yeah. to New Zealand. Yeah. Done. Planned. Someone help us, you know. Make this yeah, happen. Invite us. Okay, Ben. So a ton has happened with Ukraine since we talked last week. I'm going to do a quick summary, and then we just let's talk about whatever let's piece go. you want. 
So a bunch of news outlets reported that Biden is considering sending several thousand additional U.S. troops to Eastern Europe to buttress NATO allies uh, in the region. Other NATO countries are sending military hardware like fighter jets and ships. Again, this is not U.S. troops to Ukraine. This is to NATO allies in the region. So just to clarify that. Um, the State Department is urging U.S. citizens to leave Ukraine and they've ordered the evacuation of the families of State Department employees serving in the capital. Those moves have seemingly exacerbated a little bit of a split in opinion between U.S. officials who think an invasion from the Russians is imminent and people in Ukraine who are a little more blasé and think Putin is bluffing. Interesting split there. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security is warning that Ru the Russian response to a U.S. response to a Russian invasion of Ukraine, you follow that, uh, could be a cyber attack against the U.S. homeland. I don't know what anyone is supposed to do with that information, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but here, yeah. now get we know. Two, get two-factor. Yeah. 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 Change your password. <laughs> Change those um, passwords. On Saturday night, the British government released a statement that said Russia is planning a coup, like literally developing plans to install a pro-Russian leader in Ukraine. The Financial Times reported that the U.S. and the EU are converging on a set of sanctions they would enact if Russia invaded that would cripple Russian banks, focus on the energy sector. A lot of Republicans and Ukrainian officials are calling for Biden to preemptively sanction Russia and not wait for an invasion. I'll be honest, I don't totally get that. Ben, what, what do you think of this consolidation around sanctions on energy, on Russia's banks, uh, and the, the sort of preemptive call? So the sanctions thing is interesting because um, the most notable thing out of that press conference Biden did uh, was the reference to divisions inside of NATO that I think, you know, really about the severity of sanctions and the type of sanctions. And uh, there are a couple of angles to this. I mean, the first is that you know, Russia gets a lot of its revenue, obviously, from energy. They supply 40% of European gas. And so therefore, if we impose the more maximalist energy sanctions, you know, let's say cut off Russian gas flowing in Europe, that's obviously going to have a huge hit on the European economy. It's also going to drive up global energy prices. It's going to drive up prices at the pump on top of inflation. People could fucking freeze to death. Yeah. And, and so what you have is a circumstance where all of the political leaders who are essential to sanctions are not necessarily in the position that you would want to be in to absorb that blow. So Joe Biden is heading into a very difficult midterm election year with inflationary pressure. And obviously, if he takes a hit, um, further hit to energy prices uh, on top of that, on behalf of Ukraine, you know, that's gonna be tricky for him. But it feels like, you know, he's made that decision. Um, the German chancellor, who clearly Germany's clearly been the more reticent NATO mm -hmm. ally to impose sanctions. Not only is Germany not providing weapons to Ukraine, but they've literally prevented Estonia from shipping German-made weapons to Ukraine. So oh, yeah, they're, they're take, taking a pretty reticent stance. This is a new chancellor, though. I mean, imagine you get you finally get, get sworn in. You know, here you are. You're measuring the drapes. You're in the office. And it's like, oh, now I'm supposed to take a massive energy hit um, to deal with this crisis. Macron is running for uh, re-election. Um, remember how much the French people enjoyed rising gas prices with the yellow vest oh, yeah, protest, right? It. Um, and it. Boris Johnson is partying, right? So this is not the perfect <laughs> political circumstance. I mean, I'm always hesitant to like ascribe design to Putin's strategies, but whether he intended it or not, 
this is like a pretty good time to try to exploit divisions uh, amongst these allies on yeah. sanctions. I guess you got a lot of chances at a divided Europe, you know, they're kind of yeah, this, <laughs> all it, over the place. It's, it's, yeah. Now there are, and, and, and the thing is, I remember in 2014 when we had to impose sanctions on Russia to deter further movement into Ukraine. Like they had sent these special forces and, and this military uh, hardware into Eastern Ukraine with these separatists. And there was concern then that that, that might be foreshadowing a bigger invasion. So we do these sanctions. The Europeans, you know, were very hard to bring along. The only reason we got there is because basically Obama and Merkel got it done. You know, Merkel whipped some of the Europeans and Obama whipped some of the other ones. And we got uh, some pretty significant sanctions on Russia. Obviously not enough to get Putin out of Ukraine, but it maybe it, you know, deterred further action. Um, and so one of the questions I had is, who is the European leader that Joe Biden is closest to? I don't know. I think right? he did a, like a quad call the other day. He did a quad call, but it's interesting that, you know, the, French, you know, German. It was clearly Obama, Merkel. Okay. That was like the partnership. It, you know, he's got Macron. Uh, he's got the new guy, Schultz. Like, and so one of the things I, I want to watch in the coming weeks is, is there a European, and Macron is probably the most likely one, who kind of emerges as, as Joe Biden's partner in this, but, and do they see things eye to eye? That, that's one question I have. Um, a second thing to look you at. You want a bromance narrative. I mean, you want a buddy comedy I'm not with like Joe. Craving and it, but I mean, you you just you do need. No, you when, need your partner. Yeah, you really you've do. got all these different views inside the EU. You you need to identify the kind of core group essentially, right? The second thing is how are they going to deal with this energy question? If that's the way to impose maximum pain, now they've been putting out that they're going to try to backfill European energy supply in the event of these sanctions going into force or in, in the event of Russia cutting off things. And so what you're hearing out of the administration is they're going to increase um, uh, natural gas supplies from the United States. Right. They're going to get Qatar and some other Middle Eastern providers to ramp up production to Europe. Um, you know, that's a smart strategy. Um, I think people should be clear that can minimize and kind of cushion some of this. It can't take the place of the infrastructure that is already built to bring Russian energy into Europe. Um, you know, you need distribution mechanisms, you need you know, terminals, you need, yeah, you need literal pipelines uh, that go yeah, from Russia exactly. through Ukraine. Exactly. So that's smart that they're doing that. Um, um, but I, it's not going to fully make up for what would go offline. Then the other thing you hear a lot from uh, you know, leaks and reports is this focus on export controls. And I mentioned this before, but to be more specific, they figured out under the Trump administration a rule that essentially allows for the prevention of semiconductors in the, in the Trump case going to Huawei. And the reason isn't because all the semiconductors- Which is Huawei is a, a Chinese phone yeah. company. Yeah, that's right. A Chinese tech company. Because there are component parts to semiconductors that come from the United States. And so this is something that wouldn't necessarily whirl energy markets and would cut off potentially- the kind of raw materials and semiconductors that Russia needs to diversify its economy, to have a high tech sector, to have an aerospace industry, to have smartphones, all these things. So that feels much like much more straightforward and less of a boomerang effect than the energy sanctions. Bottom line across the board on these sanctions, though, is they have to do more work to kind of come to a common view between the United States and our allies, particularly our European allies, about how far we're willing to go in energy. Um, and, and, and they need to figure out how to minimize what the blowback is in terms of the energy sanctions. Um, and those are not simple things. I do think that, look, if Russia, if there's a full invasion, 
you know, if we're talking like tens of thousands of people are killed and this is like a land war like we haven't seen in Europe in decades, I just think the sanctions happen because the shock of that, you've been in the White House, like the politics can change quickly. But this is why the limited incursion point in the press conference, I think, sparked such blowback from Ukraine. Because clearly, if Russia, having scared everybody that there's going to be, you know, World War III in Ukraine, you know, they move some troops in eastern Ukraine, they, you know, create a land bridge between the parts of eastern Ukraine that they kind of de facto occupy in Crimea, Germans and others are not going to want to do those energy Yeah, sanctions, the hard you know? things, yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that's my, my sanctions thing. But this is really important because this is the main tool we have to deter and respond to an invasion. The idea of putting them in place now, I, I don't quite I don't understand that. Like, if it's supposed to be a deterrent against action. You can't sanction the guy and say, don't invade, but punish him anyway. I mean, if you're going to get punished, you're going to commit the crime. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Also, but, you know, the, it's interesting. I, I, I read some a bunch of reports on this semiconductor uh, export control issue, too. It is interesting. I mean, all these semiconductors go through the U.S., Taiwan, I think, Japan and South Korea. There's not like a big domestic smartphone production yeah. capacity in Russia. They get a lot of stuff from China. Yeah. So it does seem like you really can cut off the flow of some really essential high-tech goods. And it sounds like it crippled the, the revenues of Huawei when Trump did this it by did. like 30%. It did. It like did. A yeah. huge hit. So the other thing we're talking about is the U.S. and NATO are sending more troops, more hardware to Eastern Europe. Uh, apparently, in response, the Russians have been conducting a bunch of additional military exercises in Belarus and the surrounding area. And if you look at a map, like the, the Russians have Ukraine surrounded, truly. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you you read about how Putin has this discrete window to act because he literally needs the ground to be frozen so that the tanks and this heavy you know artillery can roll over this turf into Ukraine. Does the escalation here worry you of like more NATO stuff, you know, potential escalatory cycle? Well, I mean, first of all, I think the other problem he's got is it's just like hard to maintain the deployment of over 100,000 troops like that. It's true. You know, for a long time, they're not doing anything other than hanging out, right? And I think the window people tend to look at is uh, the Belarus deployment is tied to a military exercise they announced, which ends on February 20th. Um, the opening ceremonies in Beijing are coming up. Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't want to do this before the Olympics, because Xi, he, Putin himself is going to those Olympics, and oh, Xi's right. his buddy, and he may want to consult with him, that there's this kind of window between the opening ceremonies and February 20th. I don't know. We're all guessing here. I think people should understand about the 8,500 troops that have been reported as going to, to NATO. That's not about Ukraine at all. That's about NATO allies in Eastern Europe and reassuring them. Right. So, right. you know, this is about sending troops potentially to places like Poland, the Baltic states, Romania. To, to Why are we doing that? In 2014, we did something similar um, in terms of additional deployments of U.S. forces to Poland and the Baltic states. And the reason why is that those allies believe they, they believe what we say about Article 5, but they also believe that if there are American troops in their countries, that it's much less likely that Russia will come into those countries because they may end up clashing with American troops and then America is definitely in. I remember, for instance, in 2014, we set up something called the Baltic Air Policing Mission, right? So this was like an important function to have more planes in the skies over the Baltics and you know you can obviously um, gather information that way. But that's not what the Baltic states are really interested in. 
They were just interested in the Americans on the ground who were manning that uh, detachment. Yeah, yeah. They just want Americans in their countries. It's a human as shield. Kind of uh, <laughs> like I hate to say it, but this is the kind of word that would get thrown like a tripwire. You know, yeah. like like if someone's going to shoot into the Baltics, that there might be an American there, and that means the U.S. really will act on its Article Five commitment. So to me, this deployment is about number one, reassuring those allies, and number two. It is sending a message to Putin that like, hey, if your whole thing is that you want NATO off your borders, actually, this is like one good example of the fact that because of what you're doing, you're going to get more NATO, more U.S. military. Yeah, the reverse your of what you want. You're getting the reverse of what you want. Um, I don't want to go all MSNBC on you, but remember- no, I've done uh, a lot of hits, my friend. R- remember I was how, up at 6 a.m. on Stephanie Rule this morning. Remember how eager uh, Trump was to pull like 10,000 troops out of Germany? Yeah. Makes you think, Ben. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Intercept reported that Congress is planning to rush through about a half a billion dollars worth of military aid to Ukraine. So there's a lot of movement on this. Um, so, Ben, you mentioned this. You know, Biden was asked about Ukraine last week at a big press conference that went on for like 17 hours. Here's a clip uh, of what he said about Ukraine. Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, et cetera. So I worry this is going to be annoying for the Biden team. It probably already is. Like, in, in my opinion, Vladimir Putin learned nothing new from this exchange. He obviously knows that what he does is likely to get a proportional response. He knows this from yeah. common sense, from intelligence, from yeah. public statements. Yeah. But if Putin does invade, this comment will be part of every Republican talking point in an effort to blame Biden for Putin's actions. Where does this comment rank for you in terms of like mm-hmm. potential future political challenge on a scale from not a problem to Obama, Syria, red line? Well, look, there, there's an old saying, right, in Washington, which is a, a gaffe is when you uh, say something that everybody knows is true already, yep, right? Yep. And that's kind of what this is, because he's Speaking about what we just discussed, which is that like there are clearly divisions in the NATO alliance and, and, and you know, beyond NATO, just between the United States and Europe on on how far to go with these sanctions in response to Russian actions. And again, you have to remember, there's like a scale to what Putin could do here. Like there's a world in which he does nothing. And that's looking less likely, um, but it's still possible. Then on the maximalist end, there is like, you know, something that goes far beyond what we saw in 2014, like a mechanized invasion of Ukraine. Then there's this space that Putin might have conveniently set up for himself, where what he's essentially doing is scaring people about the worst case scenario so that when he then moves in a significant amount of Russian troops into those parts of eastern Ukraine, it it doesn't feel that dramatic. And in that case, like a Germany is like, well, we're not going to cut off gas supplies over yeah. this. He didn't invade the country. He right, just right, did right. an incursion. And that's clearly the, I think that remains like the most likely scenario analytically of what Putin's going to do, because doing that for him would be enough to undermine, embarrass, and maybe even topple the Ukrainian government. Um, it, it would further make clear like Ukraine is not going to join NATO. Like it's, you know, if a chunk of its territory has been annexed and another chunk is occupied, nobody really thinks that in that circumstance they could join NATO. So he could accomplish like his objectives in that in that regard um, and, and, and not face the kind of sanctions that are the more maximalist uh, versions of what we've been talking about. Um, and, and so I, I think what Biden did there is he just kind of said out loud uh, and reflected the divisions about what to do which is not helpful, frankly, because 
it does kind of play into the sense of like Putin cares about this more than the rest of us do. Right. But here's the thing, Tommy, like you you remember that when there are statements like this in press conferences, it cause problems. Sometimes the cleanup also causes problems. And I think one of the challenges is that the cleanup was saying, no, 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 no. Like if he moves an inch into Ukraine, you kind of box yourself you know, in. You're yeah. gonna, he, we're going to throw the book at yep. him. And I'm actually not sure that, that that's possible, you know? Um, and, and so they've taken a maximalist line to kind of clean that up. And, and, and it's not clear to me that like Germany and others are, are in the same place. Um, and so in a weird way, the clarification may pre present the biggest challenges because they may not be able to deliver on that statement. I say this is an enormous amount of sympathy because I've been at the exact same meeting no, no, no. in We've, the Situation Room me too. Me in 2014 too. when we we're trying to get the Europeans on board with like stronger sanctions. Just don't take the hypothetical, yeah. man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's sort of like the one rule. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, there's no reason to take that. that so we're going to do a lot more Ukraine in my conversation with Peter Beinar later, including the talk about NATO expansion and whether that is sort of part of the, the reason we're at this precarious place. So definitely check that out. But for now, Ben and I are going to turn to some other issues, um, starting in Burkina Faso. So over the weekend, there was a coup in Burkina Faso after a group of military officers ousted the president. They suspended the constitution. They dissolved the government, closed the border, and finally announced their coup on, on state TV on Monday. Uh, the man deposed uh, President Kabore. had been in charge since 2015. He spent a lot of his tenure f uh, fighting a, a really brutal, bloody war against Islamist insurgents. There was a drastic escalation of violence starting a few years back. Thousands of innocent people have been killed. Well over a million have been driven from their homes and displaced. So it's really an awful situation. The weekend before the coup, the military leaders behind it were uh, making slightly different demands. They were calling for a change in military leadership. They were asking for more help in fighting the Islamist insurgency. A lot of it comes out of Mali. And it seems like there was some support for them uh, from sort of like regular people. But then, you know, by Monday, they had pushed out the president. So, Ben, it was really tragic for the people of Burkina Faso because there was a protest movement in 2014 that at the time removed a longtime dictator. There was a lot of hope for a more democratic future. And instead, it's just been this horribly violent uh, tenure and now uh, another military coup, which is the eighth military coup in Burkina Faso since its independence from France in 1960. And it's also one of several recent military coups in the region in Western Africa, including uh, Guinea and Mali. So uh, not everything is about the U.S., but, you know, I think you and I try to talk about uh, mistakes the U.S. made or that Obama made. Uh, and it's notable, I think, that a lot of the coverage of this coup points to the toppling of Libya as an inflection point for Burkina Faso because a bunch of militants who had been working in Libya, working for Gaddafi, uh, went home. They brought their weapons with them. They went back to Mali. They started cooperating with these like Islamist factions. Uh, and it's been a nightmare for people in the region ever since. There's also a lot of concern about the presence of Russian mercenary yeah. forces in the region who are known to you know, torture, rape, murder innocent people. They're just horrific groups of people. So the whole situation seems very bad. Uh, any thoughts or takeaways from you, from what you've, you've read about this or, you know, the memories from this, um, you know, uprising in 2014 to now? Well, I, I, there's two issues I'd highlight. I mean, the first is like the kind of obviously worrisome trend of, you know, we've had coups now in Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso, you know, West Africa. Mali again, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so there's kind of a normalization of uh, military coups, which is not a good thing. Um, and ECOWAS, the regional grouping there, has tried its hardest to kind of um, uh, push back on this trend and 
maintain like the you know the demo democratization of the region, but uh, obviously things are moving in the wrong direction across the swath of it. I think the second thing is the Russian thing is real here, right? So the Wagner Group, the, that's like the Russian Blackwater. <laughs> it's like the yeah, uh, but they they've become much more present in Africa, um, being mercenaries. They have their own mining interests. And the guy who just got tossed overboard had resisted um, essentially hiring the Wagner group to oh, be no. the paramilitary force there. And, you know, so like there's some connection here, you know, that that was part of the pressure was building on him. And, and again, this ties like to tie it back to Ukraine. I mean, I, I keep thinking a lot and I think we have to question our assumptions. Like, what, why do we care about this? You know, like, why do we care about Russia and Ukraine and the rest of it? Um, and I, I think that, that, that's right. And, you, you know, I'm sure you talked to Peter about, like, the reality is, like, I think some Americans are going to be asking questions in a few months if, like, gas prices are way up. Oh, absolutely. There's nothing we can really do to stop this anyway. Like, what are we doing? The flip side of this is obviously, you know, you know why Europeans care, right? Because Putin, you know, Ukraine first and then Moldova and then, you know, the capacity of him to undermine Europe can, it mm -hmm, grows. Mm -hmm. But also you just see this, like, the, the, this pattern of aggression and undermining, almost kind of making a mockery of self-determination and democracy and sovereignty. It's just a worrisome trend, you know, and it extends to places like Burkina Faso, you know. Um, I mean, Russia is, is flexing in a lot of different places in ways that um, ha have no regard for the the people that live in these countries, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I saw you know Mali's coup leaders postponed their election to 2026. So you know, there's a lot of uh, it's going to be a long time since these till these things are resolved. Not that elections resolve it anyway. Yeah, totally different issue. A uh, quick update on Havana syndrome. So it, those who don't know, it's this mysterious, debilitating illness that has impacted hundreds of U.S. personnel serving around the world. Uh, the latest reports are that the CIA has now determined that it is unlikely that a foreign actor especially Russia, has been conducting some sort of worldwide campaign to harm U.S. personnel with a mysterious weapon, um, the microwave weapons or sound. Like there are lots of things that were floated. It, it sounds like the CIA believes that the majority of these cases are natural medical conditions like stress causing these challenges. Um, but there are still cases where it does seem like something happened, some sort of exigent event happened to individuals who are suffering. So you know, I think it's probably good to have this assessment out there and not, you know, hopefully prevent officials, elected officials, members of Congress, anybody else from just blaming Russia or other countries for attacking Americans without any real evidence. That does nothing for the people who are struggling, who feel like the government has not done enough to help them, has done, done enough to figure out what's going on or protect them. But it was interesting to have like a little bit of clarity finally uh, on at least what the U.S. thinks is happening here. Yeah, I mean, I think what this really did that was, you know, useful in, in adding information and clarity is it kind of identified the scale of what has happened, you know, um, in making because it made clear two things. Uh, one, that there have been some events that we still don't know the origin of, um, but that the much broader universe of cases that have been reported is includes a lot of people with symptoms that were not connected to some unexplainable event. And, the, and this is like, you know, what we talked about before, like when you get in a place where the symptoms are kind of migraine headaches and nausea, like there's a bunch of things that can cause that. And so at least this gave us a sense that the scale is not, not the maximalist scale where it's like there are these events everywhere. It did kind of narrow the geographic scope 
to like Havana and Geneva and and so we still don't know what it is, but that that you know that that continues to raise questions about like well you know who's active in both those places? It is Russia, right? But um, but but obviously they need to keep pulling the thread on this thing. It's yeah. a little disconcerting that you know, and I don't blame anybody. It just speaks to how hard this stuff is that. That you know, it's been a few years, and and there's still like a, a mystery at the center of this. Yeah, you really want them to solve this one. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crooked World. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crooked World. Okay, let's turn to the UAE because a scary situation there. On Monday, 
the U.S. military helped the United Arab Emirates intercept and destroy uh, two missiles that had been launched by the Houthi rebels in Yemen that targeted an airbase where 2,000 U.S. personnel are stationed. So we've talked about the Houthi rebels before. They are uh, a rebel faction fighting for control of Yemen against a coalition of countries led by Saudi Arabia, backed by the UAE, backed by the United States. It's a horrific civil war that's been going on for, what, seven years now? I mean, a yeah. long time. Uh, last week, the Houthis attacked two additional targets in Abu Dhabi and actually killed three people. In response, the Saudis, of course, launched a bunch of airstrikes into northern Yemen. Uh, there's reports that they killed like well over 100 people, yeah. that they hit a prison yeah. for some reason, uh, and it knocked out internet across the entire country. So just, you know, plunging Yemen into an even more desperate situation. Yeah. Uh, Children killed in that yeah, 100. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just a reminder, like, this civil war is still raging. Millions of innocent Yemeni people are at risk of starvation. The U.S. is still selling arms to Saudi Arabia. I, yeah. I don't think we've done enough no. to stop the civil war or, or pressure, you know, the parties for a ceasefire. So it's just, um, you know, frankly, I think an area where you're seeing activists get really frustrated with with President Biden, with the State Department and continue to push harder and harder and, you know, Congress as well. Yeah, I mean, the one like progressive uh, pledge that he really sought to follow through on early in his presidency was announcing that, you know, the U.S., he said, would stop off support for offensive Saudi military operations because it's a civil war, but it's also a Saudi invasion uh, or Saudi intervention, I guess, in that civil war. Um, and since then, there hasn't been progress in stopping the war. And the U.S., frankly, has not um, pulled back in its support, really, for the Saudis. I mean, we're, the weapons are flowing again. Um, and, and, and I highlight like a, a couple of things. Um, the first is, again, to connect this to Ukraine. If we're going to be going to the Middle East and asking for increases in energy supply to potentially make up for the sanctions that we want to put on Russia, we're going to soft pedal the Saudis. Yep. Um, and because we're going to want them to be increasing world production within OPEC, right? That's just the reality. Uh, this is why the job is hard. Th well, it just, sh <laughs> but it just shows you the, the, the secondary effects to everything you want to do. Yes. And, uh, um, the second point is the, these Houthi attacks in Abu Dhabi where they fly these drones in. Uh, look, we give them Patriot uh, batteries as their missile defense batteries that can shoot down these fairly rudimentary drones. But clearly the objective of the Houthis, which they've said themselves, is that they want to make Abu Dhabi and potentially Dubai feel unsafe. And the, these are cities that depend upon the impression that unlike the rest of the Middle East, that you can come do business here and mm -hmm. you can travel here. You can party here. And, yeah. and you can party here too. And and they they had to stop air traffic into those airports. It's a massive airport, you know. Um, and so this is a real escalation on their, their part too. Um, and look, at the end of the day though, I just think w w this this whole thing is insane. Like, the Saudis are not achieving any military objectives in no, Yemen. They're not. None. And so, I, I, I look, I, I'd like us to be able to stop the war. I, I think what we can do is stop our support for the Saudi war. Like, and that was our position when Trump was president. I think that remains like, you know, our position of like, why are we supporting a war in which children are getting bombed like this, in which nothing is being accomplished, right? Yeah. And, and I, frankly, I don't think that we should... I mean, to use the tired pun, like make it so clear that the Saudis have us over a barrel here. Like at some point you just, you can't allow like Mohammed bin Salman to have like a veto over everything that you do vis-a-vis -vis him because, you know, you, you want him, his help on other things. Like 
this is this is a mess and and it's not getting better it's getting worse and yeah. biden in the press conference is getting a lot of attention he got asked about this and you know, it was kind of like uh it's hard to you know he didn't offer a lot of of hope here um so i i do think that the pressure's got to continue to to, to raise questions about why we're providing continued military support to this. Speaking of uh, efforts to stop wars, how are you feeling about uh, efforts to get the U.S. and Iran back into the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement? I mean, this is kind of, a, again, a bit under the radar with Ukraine, but like it feels like we're in a kind of crunch time here. Yeah. Because if you listen to what's coming out of the administration, um, the Iranians clearly actually came to negotiate in this latest round that is ongoing, right? So that's positive. And there's like a potentially, and we don't know if the Iranians would ever actually say yes, but there's potentially a deal to be had. But you also hear from the administration that the Iranians have so advanced their nuclear program since Trump pulled out of the JCPOA that at a certain point, if we don't get a deal, like like we're in a different phase because the Iranians are, are nearing like a capacity to break out and get a nuclear weapons capability. So, you know, the next couple of weeks could be, a, you know, decision points here on the Iranian side, on the U.S. side. Um, and you saw this reporting, you know, about changes in the, the negotiating team. Yeah. Uh, Richard Nephew, who's the deputy to Rob Malley, the envoy, um, uh, apparently stepping down because, you know, but I, I don't, you know, Richard Nephew's a, a good guy. He's, he's a sanctions expert, too. Look, at the end of the day, um, we've always known that the choice in front of Joe Biden is going to be do you go back to the sanctions relief that was in place around the time that Trump pulled out of the JCPOA? That's, that's obviously going to be the Iranian position. Trump stacked on all these sanctions that they'd gotten relief on, and he designated them under terrorism-related designations, right? So things that had been sanctioned and gotten sanctions relief for nuclear reasons, he then kind of redesignated under terrorism so that if you want to, to get back harder, into yeah. the deal, you have to lift that. Biden's going to, I think... And again, the Iranians could still say, no, you may never get there. At some point, the question is going to be, is he willing to take the political hit for, you know, lifting those sanctions or, or relaxing those sanctions? I would argue, like, think about what we're talking about here. We had the potential war in Ukraine, right? We, we know the state of inflation. We know the state of the economy here. Like, absent a deal... Do we want an Iranian nuclear crisis this year? No, because be we could be looking at that. We yeah. could be looking at a situation in a few months if you don't get a deal uh, where the Iranians are on the doorstep of a nuclear weapon and then that's hanging out there too. So uh, again, we don't know if the Iranians would say yes. We don't know how far the U.S. is willing to go, but hopefully in the next couple of weeks we get some indication as to whether or not we can at least close this account for the time being. If not, I think we're looking at you know a pretty, pretty tricky few months here. Yeah, let's get that one done. Uh, okay, we're going to turn to a couple lighter things for the close here. So the first is in New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, sadly, has canceled her wedding celebration because of the uh, an outbreak of the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. Uh, boy, this is <laughs> this story is such a contrast to the Boris Johnson conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're it's good, later. good lead-in. Um, Lord was going to play the event. You remember her? Yeah, Never Be Lord. Royals. She had a new album this summer. That was very good. So the wedding was going to take place at some like, good yeah, People good check it out. Uh, some billionaire's estate. New Zealand has had 15,000 total uh, coronavirus cases and 52 deaths since the pandemic started. So they did a hell of a good job, helped being an island, but they locked down. She's predicting, Jacinda Ardern's predicting that case numbers could rise to 1,000 a day, which obviously is a huge escalation for them. 
uh, nearly 80% of the country. That's like a, a neighborhood in LA. Uh, literally. Omicron, yeah. 80% of New Zealand is vaxxed. 56% of their booster shot. Um, ben, this is probably going to make some subset of our listeners very, very mad. But I'm going to be honest that I think this is a dumb decision. Like, <gasps> she has to make this. Wait, wait. We've just, never criticized Jacinda Ardern on this podcast. Well, look, it, it's allowed? more about COVID stuff. Like, okay. she obviously has to make this choice for, for political reasons, as Boris Johnson yeah. ably demonstrated. But, like, if you're having a small outdoor wedding, if everyone is boosted and they test, like, three days in advance and then day of, you can do it safely. You know what I mean? I just, I just wish she's sending a message. She's being a leader. She's doing the right thing. But like, it isn't really what common sense or medical best practices dictate. If yeah, we're being honest. It's kind of like, you know, prime ministers are just like us, like, you know, uh, Omicron and these latest waves have been a pain in the ass for everybody. And, you know, I think she's just going to say like, Hey, like every, I know everybody is being inconvenienced. So I'm going to inconvenience myself too. It's the right I, thing I think politically. It's the right, it's the right thing politically. It's the right, it's the right, yeah. It's, I, and I think it, like the right thing to do, you know, she's really established herself as someone who, 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 whose personal actions and behavior and the way she carries herself connect to not just her politics, but her policies and her whole leadership brand. And like, you know, this is the thing to do. It's the thing to do. But like, meanwhile, like, we're gonna have the Super Bowl in LA with sixty five. Well, yeah, people. I mean, you know, look, we're true. stupid. She's yeah. smart. No, there's a middle ground. You, you just, are, you are there, correct. There's there no common are, sense are, being yeah. applied to this scenario. In the same way, the like global freak out about Obama's birthday party was stupid and irrational. Oh, and, God, like, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like the 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 amount of focus put on sort of little things like weddings or versus like you know the Olympics that are happening, the Super Bowl. I, I just it. It can be a little frustrating seeing the uh, lack of proportion and irrationality and the various actions taken for me. What they should do is have, therefore, like the rager of all ragers when she has a wedding. Yeah. Right? That would justify the decision. It's like, okay, well, we're going to, like, you know, we're going to invite like all of New Zealand to this wedding. Sure. We're, we're going to yeah. invite like the cool leaders from around the world. Peter like, Jackson. We're going to have like the Chilean guy and the Finnish woman and like all, you know, like we're going to have like, just yeah, Peter Jackson. Or we could do like a boy in the bubble kind of thing too, if we want to do it sooner. Yeah, you could do that too. Bubble boy. Well, Lord, Lord, I have to say was, I mean, that's cool. The Lord was flying. I like Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully she's uh, available later. So you mentioned Chile. So uh, very fun, sort of fascinating little twist and turn of history out of Chile. So uh, Gabriel Boric, who is the new left wing president of Chile, has named his cabinet. Fourteen of the twenty four ministers are women, which is cool. But his uh, the sort of coolest part of this is his new defense minister is a woman named Maya Fernandez, who is the granddaughter of Salvador Allende, the socialist president who was overthrown by a military coup in 1973, killed himself as you know the palace was being bombed, uh, the coup backed by the United States, by the way, that ushered in the Pinochet dictatorship. So pretty amazing. I mean, he takes office March 11th. He'll be 36. When, when he takes over. Yeah. Um, amazing story. Think about what you've accomplished. I mean, I. Um, it is a reminder. I mean, Salvador Allende, you know, dies in the presidential palace, I think, uh, in a Henry Kissinger-designed uh, coup. Um, it's a good reminder. I, what I thought about is, like, things can look, you know, pretty grim. I'm sure, like, things looked pretty bad if you're a Chilean in 1973, you know, particularly if you're a progressive Chilean, and and here we are, right? It shows you how much history can change. Yeah. You know, it shows you that things can look one way, uh, and then it can look very differently later on. So hopefully, we don't have to wait um, 
50 years for, for things to look better here. But uh, man, it's a marker of the times in Chile. You know? <laughs> Our version is like Ivanka's triumphant return as president yeah, in 30 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, some sort of dark yeah. Black Mirror version. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the, the flip side of uh, Jacinda is Boris Johnson. So somehow, I, I literally don't know how this is possible. I don't think there are that many days in the week during which one can party, but there is another report about another party thrown by Boris Johnson's administration during COVID lockdown in 2020. ITV News reported that Johnson's wife, Carrie Johnson, threw a surprise birthday party for him in the cabinet room at number 10 Downing Street, indoors, with up to 30 people attending on June 19th, 2020. Uh, Boris's team is trying to claim he was only there for 10 minutes. They are denying reports that there was another party the same day later in his home. Uh, that led to one of the most hilarious pieces of spin I have ever heard. This is a clip from conservative party MP and Boris Johnson super supporter, super fan, I guess, Connor Burns. Here's a clip. People came in, presented him with a cake on his birthday. They sang happy birthday. He was there for about 10 minutes. It was not a premeditated, organized party in that sense um, that the prime minister himself decided to have sent out. He, as far as I can see, he was, in a sense, ambushed with a cake. Ambushed with a cake. There's like, there's like a hint of um, Marion Barry, bitch, set me up. To uh, yeah, well, and I mean, the guy's like trying to make himself, like they're trying to be all hawkish on Ukraine. Like this guy is fucking ambushed by a cake ambushed and he's going to stand up to Putin, right? Like, I, I mean, like this, like this is so British listeners, like, what is going on over there? Like, this is the country of, 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 of the stiff upper lip, of Churchill, of shared sacrifice. We're in this together. Well, these guys lock down and, so and, hard, and, too. And, I think and, that's what's hurting him. And, and by the way, well, but the, the thing Brits is, did. here's the thing. Like, we have to get back to Hot basics, Boris. too. Like, like, yes, this guy's in a drip, drip, drip of absurdity because at a time when we were all locked down, this guy seems like he just couldn't stop partying, right? Couldn't but stop. But, like, it's not as if, like, again, Churchill had like the seven or eight extra drinks, you know, before the afternoon, but he was fucking Churchill. Well, then he went to the roof and he watched uh, the Germans saying. fly this sorties is, and drop bombs onto his city. This is from Boris the roof Johnson. While this reciting is, like Tennyson poems. That's that's the exactly the point I'm making is that like, it's not like this guy is such a high caliber individual too, that, you know, you can look the other way about the partying. This guy is like a cartoonish, lying buffoon nationalist, right? Shapeshifter. Like, who has so little respect for everybody that he's, like, partying his way through the early weeks of COVID. Slamming drinks. While locking you guys down. Going to Peppa Pig world. Get having the time of his out life. Of there. Like, what is going on over there? I, have Come you ever on. seen a more devastating, like, death by a thousand cuts leak campaign <laughs> no. ever in history? Like, well, no, clearly. Someone is a genius. Clearly people don't like it him. Out and clearly, it yeah, out. and clearly people don't like him. And look, I know One we're, we're, in, the, we're in the largest glass house in the world here in the United States. We, we've got Donald Trump circling around, oh, right? Cool. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just saying that, like, like, I mean, I guess maybe like the benefit of him sticking around is that like you get to see this kind of drip, 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 drip. But I mean, like, like let's get a real prime minister over there. Well, so, so along the, those that line, our friend Mark Landler, who's the New York Times bureau chief in London, who is uh, good gig, by d- the way, didn't get invited. Way, good for Landler to get out of D.C. and get over there. Well, yeah, but he didn't get invited to any of the parties. So that's just making me wonder if he's just not a good time. 
I, you know, I, I've hung with Landler on farm trips. I mean, he's good for like a hotel bar. Drink, I'm just saying, know, like, like, hey, British people, someone invite Mark to like a to lunch or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, he had a great report on this whole scandal for the Daily today. It does sound like Boris Johnson's 80 seat majority, 80 seat majority, uh, is really at risk for the first time. You had conservative lawmakers dramatically crossing over, you know, Parliament uh, to the Labor side before Boris spoke. There's another senior member standing up and saying, you know, it's time for you to go. There's a broader sense. Lammy's throwing haymakers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Lammy's is whacking yeah, them on yeah. There's this broader sense of like Boris Johnson was like, his his vision was Brexit and he's got nothing else to offer. And I, I can see that. Well, that's the thing is like, what what is this like governing program that's so worth putting up with this kind of like <laughs> national know. embarrassment? If you're a Tory, minister, like you know? get rid of this clown. Just get rid of this clown. And like, I mean, I you know, if you're labor, you got to be wishing there was an election around the corner. I mean, like yeah. uh, the timing is, is, is unfortunate for Keir Starmer. But uh, yeah, I mean, this, I, I, again, I guess the, the upside though is like, because you know there are more parties. Like everybody seems to know that there are more parties that are going to keep coming out like this. And each time they're going to send some some somebody with like no dignity to go on television. Oh, he was he was actually he was ambushed by the cake. Uh, I, yeah, I'm just waiting for like pre premeditated. What, what what does that even mean? Premeditated. Pre premeditated like, this caking. Is this like a terrorist attack or something? The, like, dr like drive by fruiting. Yeah, like well, how could it get where like oh the the ice luge was accidental. Like the the, the apple bobbing competition was not sanctioned. And I, here's the other <laughs> thing. Like uh, let me just find another angle to make fun of Boris Johnson about this. Please. Like the, 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 it's not like. He, this is Camelot in number 10, right? It's <laughs> yeah. not like this glamorous guy, right? Yeah. You know, this is, it's not like we got some like James Bond prime minister and they, they're partying with like martinis and it's cool. It's like, it's Boris Johnson. Like, yeah. I, how good are these parties? I, like, could these parties, can't I, like, they can't, can't, can't like, I mean, Landler, maybe, like, Landler maybe did maybe get invited and didn't want to go. Maybe he had better things to do because, like, it doesn't, like, like, if I had a list of things to do in London, like the garden party with Boris Johnson is not very high on my list. Yeah, maybe Landler was uh, running around with, you know, Keir Starmer and some soccer hooligans <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like yeah. wrecking shit. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. This one goes in the category of it could get worse, which is a story about Naib Bukele. We talked about it on the show before. He's the young, brash, authoritarian president of El Salvador who loves to be, you know, kind of a little dictator and he loves Bitcoin. Um uh, Bukele has talked <laughs> he really about loves Bitcoin. loves Bitcoin. So he's talked about building a Bitcoin city. He's talked about powering it with geothermal energy from volcanoes. Blah blah blah. As we said before, I own some crypto. I think there's cool applications. You do? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I don't get it as a currency per se, given the volatility. I, I, I certainly don't think it's like a safe place to put your your all your money. I think it's a small yeah. speculative bet. That is could be interesting in the long term, yeah, but for me, that's like weed stocks. There you go. Yeah, yeah but you're doing great. But Bukele, <laughs> Bukele is basically day trading. You're a consumer and an investor. <laughs> Bukele is basically the day trading with like El Salvador's treasury funds, um, and the results are and tweeting about it. Fucking disastrous results. And we know this right because he tweets about it. He yeah. tweets about buying the dip. So on November 26th of last year, Bukele said he bought the dip bought 100 additional Bitcoin after the price had fallen 8%. The low Bitcoin price that day was $54,377 per Bitcoin. Today, the price of Bitcoin is hovering around $36,000 per coin, and that's up from its low. So all told, Bitcoin has been off by about 15% from its record highs, which is about the time uh, Bukele got into the buy the dip game. And you know this isn't the only time 
he has tweeted about buying the dip and, and caught the falling sword, as, as you know, uh, traders like to say. So he's constantly tweeting about buying millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. He's appropriated like the stupid meme culture you see from Elon Musk and others, where like the latest thing he did was he changed his Twitter icon yeah. to his avatar to to be a McDonald's employee, which I guess is like a reference to a Bitcoin stonks, you know, meme thing where uh, these traders say like that's what they'll do for a living when their holdings crash. So I'm sure yeah, everyone in El Salvador finds that hilarious. Yeah. Uh, he also tweeted, most people go in when the price is up, but the safest and most profitable moment to buy is when the price is down. It's not rocket science. So invest a piece of your McDonald's paycheck in Bitcoin. Now go back to flip more burgers, you lazy fuck. And he spelled fuck with some weird characters. So again, seems like a great guy. He's right. You buy low, you sell high. But in the interim, the problem for him is that El Salvador's credit worthiness has tanked in part because their crypto holdings have tanked. So like this is just a disaster. It's so predictable. It's tragic for the people of El Salvador. Like you and I invest a little in crypto. We're like, we don't want the treasury secretary buying the dip. It, I, it just, it, it drives me nuts, Ben. And all these tweets about Bitcoin are in English and everything else is in Spanish. Well, so clearly it. he's communicating yeah. with like at Jack. Well, that's the thing is like, like at what point, I mean, what is like the tether between this guy? I mean, he he came up as a populist, like a populist in a country. He, he's tweeting in English, buying the dip and losing everybody's money and then making fun of people who work in McDonald's. <laughs> he was a populist like, in there. W- w- like, like making fun of people, like, uh, like in a country where like there's serious poverty in this country, like, like what is going on here? Like, what is going on is the question. This, this guy, like, it's like he was designed in a laboratory to be the most obnoxious 2022 autocrat bro possible. You yeah. Know? I mean, it, I, and where does this end? It's a pretty young guy. I mean, he he may just have like a, a an exit strategy where, like, he knows he's gonna like you know he's he was he's popular there, but like something tells me that's gonna dip, <laughs> to, to use one of his mm-hmm. phrases. Maybe he just like washes up, you know, hanging out at like crypto bro investor conferences and in the valley. And like, I mean, uh, he must have an exit strategy that is something other than being president of El Salvador. Yeah. Yeah. And look, don't add us. I realize that Bitcoin could go way back up. It could quadruple in value. It could be a great investment. But like the point is, it's very speculative. It's gambling. Just don't do that with treasury funds. This guy's whole tenure as president of El Salvador feels like a 90-minute Hulu documentary that I'm going to watch <laughs> three years from now with an edible and be like, I can't believe this happened. You know, it's just like, him and the WeWork yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him and the WeWork guy. You <laughs> just know? hanging out. Uh, that's good. Uh, last story, Bed. Uh, Axios reported that former failed Secretary of State Mike Pompeo spent $30,000 on media training from last March until June. $30,000. This guy was Secretary of State. He was a member of Congress. And he drops thirty grand on media training to do what? To do a bunch of like Fox News Fox hits, yeah. safe space hits. So, question for you: Can media training make you not an asshole? Is I that mean, a service? The basic provide? problem that Mike Pompeo has is that he comes across in his very being as a smarmy asshole. Yeah, um, and, and he's got kind of like a smirk and. And, and like, like this is, I mean, remember the swagger thing? Like, oh, yeah. You know, um, and, and that's kind of an unsolvable problem for him. Um, I'm very much, I mean, look, I, 
I don't want Donald Trump to run for president for the sake of American democracy and the future of humanity. Um, but another reason why it'd be great if Donald Trump doesn't run for president is it will be a lot of fun to watch Mike Pompeo take that. Like 1% uh, in Iowa. Yeah, yeah, Mr. 1%. Like, like I'd like to see that presidential campaign because it'll be hilarious to watch the guy flounder. You know, he'll have his like Madison dinner donors mm -hmm. and his like 100 pounds off waistline and his media training and none of it will make any difference because people just don't really like that guy. He'll have like a Mike Bloomberg-esque ROI on the votes he receives. Um, and that ca Kansas paper that hates him will just troll so the funny. shit. It's <laughs> so funny, that Edward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see him out there attacking Biden for being weak and not like deterring Oh yeah, because he did Russian? so much to get ready for it's this. It's like, you know, yo man, yeah, you were on a yeah. call when Trump was like trying to extort President Zelensky <laughs> of Ukraine for dirt on Biden instead of, I don't know, helping them out? Yeah, yeah. Drives um, me absolutely crazy the com i mean i think uh, like i've been thinking a lot you know in 2014 like i'm sitting in the sit room constantly dealing with two things like probably above anything else like the iran nuclear deal and the ukraine crisis and you know here we are in 2022 and a lot of the same people are sitting in the same room dealing with it and and the trump presidency made both things so much worse and harder. Yeah, right? it could have just stayed in the JCPOA. So like on Iran, they just trashed the deal and now Iran has all this other additional nuclear capability and it's harder to get back in the deal because who's ever going to trust the United States to keep a deal and blah, blah. And on Ukraine, like think of what's happened in the intervening years like you know yeah. uh and, and, and these guys spent like a four years dem like attacking nato for no and, reason and not resolving any of these issues in eastern ukraine and not you know doing anything to prepare the ground to push back against putin and it, it does make like i i've been trying to just to end back on ukraine as you go into peter's discussion like I, i've been trying to think about like why would putin do the the, the maximalist thing right and i think the point is that if you're putin and, and this has been your objective for 20 years, is to get a, basically a buffer between you and NATO, right? To have these, these countries on your border that are not democracies and not NATO, because the two things that you feel threatened by are mainly democracy, but NATO is kind of a symbol of democracy. Yeah, the right? color revolution. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and also to kind of recover some greatness. By, you know, there's no ideological project at home, but to kind of recover some Russian Make Russia great again. Standing. You and make Russia it. great again, right? Um, and you get to this point where you've got, you know, Belarus in your pocket and Kazakhstan, as we talked about, and all this stuff. But the one problem is Ukraine. And the thing is that I've been thinking about, and the Trump, this is where the Trump piece plays into it, is that he's actually lost, you know, he gained Crimea in this annexation, and he kind of messed around and obviously has this de facto um, uh, occupation of, of a chunk of eastern Ukraine. But in the process, he lost Ukraine because... And Alexei talked about this when we had him on, like Ukrainians now are more anti-Russia than they were even, you know, a decade ago, eight years ago. He knows he cannot ever kind of pull them back just through coercion and disinformation campaigns and things like this. You cannot be a Ukrainian politician and, and, and be pro-Russian. Um, and so if he really wants to solve this problem, there's this one big chunk of land, this one really big important country, which by the way, is also the country that Russian nationalists truly believe the most should be part of Russia. And he 
might just think that like, look, now's the time I'm going to do this. Like when coming out of a pandemic, everybody's on their back foot, there's inflation, all these people, and, and I'm just going to go. And if, if Trump had done anything with those four years, you know, to try to resolve this, to try to fortify Ukraine, to make it less vulnerable. And it's just like, instead, all he did is, you know, yeah, talk about pulling troops out of Germany and uh, undermine U.S. credibility, make this alliance, uh, you know, uh, like uh, something that there's no muscle memory of working together in this way. It, you know, it, 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 this moment is much harder for the Biden people than than even 2014 was for us. Putin uh, gained a peninsula and he lost a friend, you know. Yeah. And the Mike Pompeo's then the Republican Party can't figure out whether they're like super hawks like Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo or, or they're just super Kremlin boosters. Yeah, like it's crazy. Nuts. Yeah, we actually talked about it with Peter. Um, speaking of which, uh, we're going to go to a quick break, but stick around for my conversation with Peter Beinart about NATO expansion, you know, whether it incentivized uh, Putin to be more aggressive with some of his neighbors, conventionalism in Washington, all of it. A uh, really great conversation. So check it out. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aww. let me just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not this is bvk for ocean city tourism OCMD streaming audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30 second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid back Maryland coast where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out. Where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I am thrilled to be joined today by Peter Beinart. He is the editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, and he's the author of the Beinart Notebook on Substack, a fantastic uh, Substack. I'm a subscriber. Uh, Peter, thanks for, for being here today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So I, I wanted to talk to you uh, after reading a piece you wrote on your Substack earlier this week, I think on Monday. It was about the topic of NATO expansion, which went from controversial to, I would say, maybe generally unquestioned or, or infrequently questioned in Washington, or at least in foreign policy circles. And there's the broader question about how much of uh, Putin's aggression towards his neighbors may or may not come from him feeling threatened by NATO. 
So I wanted to explore that topic and maybe just start with just a little bit of basic history. Um, in the late 90s, NATO decides to expand to include Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic. Why was that controversial at the time and, and who criticized that decision? It was controversial because it was a time of greater optimism about the U.S.-Russian relationship, about the possibilities that Russia might be a democracy, and, and also just the possibility that, that Europe would no longer be a place of kind of hostile camps, um, that with the end of the Warsaw Pact, which had been the Soviets' alliance, that, that there would be some kind of overarching structure that wouldn't divide Russia from the West as, uh, as it had during the entire Cold War. And so the critics, who were a pretty all-star roster of kind of establishment graybeards, you know, from George Kennan, the kind of OG himself, the father of containment, to John Lewis Gaddis, probably the most prominent Cold War historian, to Thomas Friedman, to Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Um, they warned that this was going to produce the very backlash in Russia that we didn't want to see. And they took seriously that Boris Yeltsin, who was Bill Clinton's kind of big buddy, was saying, this is going to empower people in Russia that you're not going to like. Now, there were, of course, people who supported NATO and expansion. I don't want to suggest that there wasn't an argument for it. I mean, there were inspiring leaders in Eastern Europe, like Václav Havel, you know, mm -hmm. who wanted it. And frankly, if I were Polish or Hungarian or Czech, I would want it too, given yeah, their too. horrifying history. So I'm not claiming it was a slam dunk. My point was just that this was considered a respectable argument in Washington when you were just talking about letting Hungary, Czech Republic, and Poland in. No, now we're talking about Ukraine, which is much closer to Russia, and you're considered kind of a little bit of a freak now if you think that maybe actually it's not a good idea. Yeah, I mean, just so folks understand, I mean, you, I think you wrote this in your piece. These are not members of Code Pink. George Kennan <laughs> was the the author of the the Long Telegram, uh, I believe, was what it's called, yeah. sort of the original cable that set out the course of Cold War theory and containment, and a rather hawkish individual. Um, some people point to this specific conversation between then Secretary of State James Baker and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev as maybe part of the, the the seed of the problem here. Baker reportedly said uh, that if Germany was allowed to unify within NATO, that NATO wouldn't expand eastward. Now, none of this was put in writing. The details are disputed. Can you help us understand the details of that dispute? And do you think this started the mistrust? Yes. Now, it may well be that Baker never said, we will never expand US troops into Eastern Europe. But what's important to remember is at that point, that was not even something that was on the table. What he was, what the dis dis discussion at that point would be, would NATO troops move into East, the former East Germany? Mm -hmm. Which just gives you a sense of how much the playing field has shifted, right? Um, it was considered, um, the debate then was, would U.S. troops even be in the eastern part of Germany? The idea that they would eventually be on former Soviet soil in the Baltic states, and now potentially Georgia and Ukraine, was not something that people were even imagining. So, yes, the Russians, and I think it's important to recognize, not just, you know, right-wing, ultra-nationalist, thuggish, autocratic Russians like Vladimir Putin, but Russians who actually genuinely wanted to integrate with the West saw this as something that was a threat. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so almost getting us up to today. I mean, over time, as you mentioned, NATO's expanding sort of right to Russia's doorstep. And then the, on the way out the door, the Bush administration decided to nominate Georgia, the country, and Ukraine for NATO membership. Why did they do that? And can you sort of help everyone explain or understand that weird place, the limbo that left those countries in? Yes, this was a very controversial decision in 2008. It was opposed by some of America's biggest European allies, the Germans and the French, um, and I think by elements inside the U.S. government as well. But I think Bush felt um, a, a kind of an obligation to those countries um, to try to bring them into the Western system. And again, that impulse is totally understandable and, and, and noble. But in foreign policy, it's not just a question about what your ideals are. You have a limited amount of power. And so the question is, are you biting off more than you can chew? I don't think that the people who were opposing that promise were opposing it because they wanted Ukraine and Georgia to be under Russia's thumb. They were opposing it because they just didn't think it was realistic for America and its allies to make a military promise. Remember, NATO is a military alliance. It would require American kids to fight in Ukraine on Russia's border. And given how important Ukraine is to Russia, that it was considered unrealistic to to make that military promise. And so the compromise was that um, uh, it would be ext- it would be offered at some kind of future date, but with no plan for it actually happening, which in some ways was the worst of both worlds. It it produced a Russian backlash, but it actually hasn't gotten the Ukrainians into NATO with the protection that would provide. Yeah, no, so so that gets us today, and I think you know everyone should read your piece and everyone should subscribe to your Substack because you write about all kinds of fascinating stuff and you sort of take contrarian, interesting positions. Often, I guess I didn't come away from your piece thinking Beinart's blaming NATO expansion for Putin's aggression. I, I I came away thinking you were saying essentially like, hey, we should talk about this, whether it was a bad idea, whether it was part of a range of uh, of sort of factors that are leading to this you know, the super nationalistic, you know, former KGB guy to be hyper aggressive in our faces. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Look, part of what's so hard about these situations is that, you know, Putin, to use the term that you guys throw around liberally, uh, which I appreciate, is an asshole, right? I mean, he's (laughs) a horrifying leader. Um, uh, And so the last thing that anyone who cares about human rights and liberal democracy wants is to be seen as an apologist for Vladimir Putin in the same way that the last that, that would never want to be seen as an apologist for Xi in China. And I remember this very distinctly from the Iraq war debate. One of the reasons it was hard to oppose the Iraq war, which, by the way, I got completely wrong and I supported it. Um, but one of the things that the people who opposed it had trouble with was they got accused of being apologists for Saddam Hussein. Right. But it was possible to understand that Saddam Hussein was a monster and also recognize that it was beyond the limits of American power to invade Iraq. And I think the problem we have here is it is beyond the limits of American power to, to um, make Ukraine a country that can be have an anti-Russian foreign policy. Do they have mm-hmm. the right to have an anti-Russian foreign policy? Absolutely they do. Of course they do. But unfortunately, in the world, location matters, right? So just as Mexico doesn't really have the ability to join a military alliance with China or Russia, even though they should be able to do that, but they can't because they unfortunately or fortunately are located next to us, we have to think about what is the best possible deal that Ukraine could get. 
And I think that given that the dirty little secret is they're not going to be admitted into NATO because no American president is going to take the risk that they're going to have to send in American 19-year-olds to fight in eastern Ukraine against Russian troops, the most crucial thing is, first of all, that it gets to remain a free society at home, um, uh, and secondly, that we don't that the war doesn't break out. And so that we should be open to the possibility of some kind of neutrality arrangement where they don't enter NATO, but also Russia agrees to let them alone internally, if that's possible. I don't know, but mm -hmm. I, that would be the goal for me. Yeah, some writers point to the example of Finland as exactly. being a, a country that's done this pretty well. You know, So, okay, I, I would say the outer bounds of this debate is, was a, a piece I read by Stephen Waltz, who's a professor of international relations at Harvard. He wrote the following. The great tragedy is this entire affair was avoidable. Had the United States and its European allies not succumbed to hubris, wishful thinking, and liberal idealism and relied instead on realism's core insights, the present crisis would not have occurred. Indeed, Russia would probably never have seized Crimea and Ukraine would be safer today. The world is paying a high price for relying on a flawed theory of world politics. This is part of a long thoughtful piece about realism, the sort of um, heady late 90s, uh, the sort of over-moralizing foreign policy where, you know, democracy was going to rule the day and sort of crass interest didn't matter. I was curious what you thought about that and whether, I, I don't know, it feels like it leaves out uh, uh, Putin's fear of color revolutions, his domestic politics and the need to lash out the, the you know, the precarious situation they're in economically. But I'm just curious if you read that piece and you had thoughts. Yeah, and I generally agreed with a lot of it. Look, I want to make it clear. There are very smart people on the other side of this. People who sure, I sure. respect, you know, Ann Applebaum at The Atlantic, Michael McFall, who you know. I mean, people yeah. who know a lot about Russia. So I don't want to claim that this is a slam dunk position at all. I think two things can be true, though. It can be true that Putin is a dictator who is afraid that a thriving Ukraine would threaten his hold on power. It's also true that Russian leaders from the czars through the Soviets, through our buddy Boris Yeltsin, all have felt, even Alexei Navalny, right, the guy who Putin has thrown into that dungeon, mm -hmm. has said, made right. statements that suggest right. that he doesn't, wouldn't want Ukraine to be at odds with Russia. And so I think these things are both true. And I think the, the, the problem is that I think we have um, inflamed some of the very kind of hypernationalism in Russia that Putin has therefore exploited in order to, to secure his dictatorship. And also that we have essentially, we in 2008, we made a promise that we can't keep. And one of the dangers, I think, historically in American foreign policy is we write checks that we can't, ca that we don't have the funds to cover. And I think this was one of the problems with that promise in 2008. Yeah, I mean, look, there's just a fundamental asymmetry of interest here that we should be honest about. I mean, Russia is going to care about events on its border more than we will care about a country thousands of miles away. And I, I agree with you. I don't think it's a slam dunk at all. I just, I, I in reading your piece, I was struck uh by how remarkable it is that the Mike McFall and Applebaum position to people who I read closely and highly respect is on TV all the time, even on MSNBC. But the you know conversation we're having is not surfaced very often. And I think that's, that's such an important good. point. The big the problem, of course, is that the person who's surfacing surfacing the most in the crudest and most dishonest way you could, because that's just the way he is in general, is Tucker Carlson. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course, nobody wants to be on the same side of Tucker Carlson as on anything. But I think partly 
he's filling a void that I think has been left by some people in the Democratic Party who I think actually should be finding their voice more. I feel like we this this happens in in the United States. We there's a there's a really bad guy on the other end, and 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 nobody wants to be seen as being on his side. And I think it cre- it means that people who have private reservations about the path that the U.S. is going, sometimes avoid voicing them. And mm-hmm. I unfortunately, it leaves the space to people like Tucker Carlson, who are the last people that you want to be the, the pole in this debate. Yeah. And I want to ask you a little more about Tucker in a minute, because he's an interesting example here. Um, I have noticed that in blob circles, the the blob for listeners who don't know is, you know, Ben Rhodes's term for like this sort of hawkish elite foreign policy establishment that never dies or goes away. But in blob circles, when you when you talk about NATO expansion or maybe criticize it, the reaction is sort of like what you said, like, how dare you, Neville Chamberlain, blame America? But those same people are the first to say that Joe Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan sent the message of weakness to Putin or maybe to China or maybe to Iran. Name your favorite boogeyman. Uh, they'll name them all. Do you sort of stepping back a little bit? And this is a big question. Do you think that there's evidence that shows that a U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan or even Iraq or even Vietnam emboldens an enemy like the sort of conventional wisdom says? Is there is there times in history where we've seen that? There's some fair amount of international relations kind of theory writing on this. Uh, Dow Press has written about it, uh, a bunch of other people. For my reading of that literature, that's generally not the way things work, which is to say, you know, one of the th- things that people used to say during the Vietnam War was if we leave Vietnam, the Soviets will be inva- emboldened to attack us in West Berlin. No, they weren't because they understood that the dynamics of the conflict in West Berlin were really different than in Vietnam, that we cared a lot more about West Berlin than we cared about Vietnam. And in fact, Mm -hmm. one of the points that actually George Kennan made was the the best way to weaken our position in West Berlin would be to overextend ourselves in other places that don't matter as much. And so there are a lot of people who are saying, no, no, we got to stand up in Ukraine because otherwise that'll send the message to China that they can get away with it in Taiwan. I think the stronger argument is the reverse. The more the U.S. gets bogged down in its focus and expends resources in a new Cold War in Eastern Europe, the less the less we're able to actually focus on securing uh, to focusing in Asia against China, which is a much, much more formidable threat. We have a limited amount. We're a powerful country, but not an unlimited power, not a country with unlimited power. We have limited resources and we have to deploy them wisely. That's why I think Biden was wise to get out of Afghanistan and to try to refocus on Asia. And I really worry that this chain of events with Russia could set off a, a, a series of things that actually really undermine that whole effort. Yeah. And look, we, we, we've all seen that happen before. I mean, back so back to Tucker. You're right that he is sort of voicing this counter argument. I would argue that he's doing it in ways that are sort of not honest. Right. He says, oh, uh, Ukraine joining NATO would be like Mexico being controlled by China, which is right. just not factually true mm-hmm. in any way. But what do you make of that? I mean, I mean, he's I think back in Budapest broadcasting again, he spent a week there with Viktor Orban. He does seem to have this thing for sort of like you know, hyper-religious, conservative authoritarians, but I, I don't know what else to make of it. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. And that's why he's like the worst possible spokesperson for this argument that, as I say in my substack, was made by 
Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski, when they argued that the Finland neutral model was the best model for Ukraine back in 2014. Because you're right, we don't know whether he's just concerned about the US overextending itself or whether it's just because he likes, you know, he, he obviously has an ideological sympathy for authoritarian leaders. But I think that it does speak to a disturbing disconnect, and, and Trump revealed this as well in some ways, between, I think, of, of the kind of the foreign policy blob and where some segment of the American people is, which is to say there's a kind of lip service paid to the idea in Washington that the extreme, that the expansion of American power in the post-Cold War era was not seen by a lot of Americans as necessarily benefiting them, mm -hmm. which is partly what produced, led the, the kind of created the conditions for the back, some of the backlash that we've seen. Obviously not the only thing, but one of the things. And I worry that even though people talk about that in a kind of foreign policy for the middle class and refocusing, that, that there's this reaction when something happens like this, where it leads them to forget some of those lessons. I really don't think that I'm not convinced that there is an appetite among the American people for the kind of level of commitment that would be required for a sustained confrontation with Russia over Ukraine, which is why I'm more open to forms of compromise in, to prevent that, if possible, than I think a lot of people in the blob are. And I worry that the further we go down this, the more they, people in the blob may find that they don't actually have a constituency for this outside there and out there in the country. I, look, I, I agree. I mean, I don't know the right answer. I, I obviously don't want the Russians to invade Ukraine. I don't want anyone to get killed. I don't want people in Ukraine to be told how to live their lives or who to ally with. But I do think that lack of support you're talking about is kind of self-evident when, you know, when someone asks you, like, so why would we send a thousand troops to Ukraine? What's our interest there? And it's 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 not it's a it's a values based answer. It's not an easy one to explain. And I think you know, the, the weakness of the kind of neocon argument here is probably demonstrated by how quickly they reach for China. And they say, oh, we got to, you know, show Xi that, you know, he can't do this to Taiwan. It's like, I don't know that he gives a shit about what we do in Ukraine when it comes to Taiwan. I think if he wants Taiwan, he's going to make some moves there and we're going to have to deal with that separately. But I, I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah. And I think this, this points to the fact that I think, you know, tragically, unfortunately, the U.S. isn't in that strong a position, I don't think. I mean, we can level all the sanctions we want, but at this point, I, I think I don't think it's very likely that our sanctions, I think the fact sanctions have been kind of factored in. And the more nuclear we get with our sanctions, the more there could be all kinds of blowback effects to those sanctions that we can't even predict. And so given that we're not willing to fight, I think the danger is for me is that there's a mismatch between the resources we're willing to put into this and the the demands that we're making. And I think that's always dangerous in foreign policy. Yeah, I do too. L last question. I mean, Washington seems very alarmed about a potential invasion of Ukraine. You hear a lot of people in Ukraine kind of saying like, chill out, calm down. We think he's bluffing. Do yeah. you have an opinion? Do you have a, do, how do you make sense of that disconnect? I really don't know, but I do think that it is really interesting that it's not just in Ukraine, in, in Germany, 
to in France, there the there seems to be less, they are seem less convinced, the governments there, that he's gonna make a move than in the US and the UK. And I'm not privy to this intelligence. I don't know why, but I think it's one, one again, this is as someone who lived through the Iraq experience, one of the things that I think is really, really important is we can get caught in a certain bubble in terms of US media, the US foreign policy. And it's really important to be able to step outside of that and recognize that it's not, this is not necessarily being seen in exactly the same way, even in some other countries that largely share our values. And I think that's important. I hope that yeah. the, I really hope that the French and the Germans and the Ukrainians are right. Yeah, yeah. And in, in countries, uh, at least in the case of Ukraine, with a hell of a lot more skin in the game. I mean, Germany, too, with Nord Stream and everything else that would be uh, that, that could fall victim to some sort of conflict. Um, Peter, where can people find your writing in your Substack? Uh, at Jewish Currents, which is a magazine that I think folks will find interesting if they're is interested in Israel-Palestine uh, uh, from a progressive Jewish perspective, and also at, uh, at Substack.com, uh, The Bine Art Notebook. I literally can't believe we just talked for 22 minutes and Bibi Netanyahu didn't come up. <laughs> I mean, do you, what, do you think he's going to get a plea? Like, it sounds like there might be a deal here. He might not go to jail. It, it sounds like he could get a deal which may keep him out of jail, but require him to not be in politics. And that'll be interesting because remember, the thing holding this Israeli government together is the fear of Netanyahu. So you take Netanyahu out of the picture and instantly Israeli politics changes dramatically. The government would actually probably change dramatically. So it would be a big deal and it would be a good thing. Oh, man. Well, if that happens, you got to come back and we'll talk about it. And we'll, uh, we'll, I don't know, we'll pop a cork or something. Maybe some champagne. champagne. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Peter Beiner, thank you so much for doing the show. Everyone should subscribe to your Substack. Uh, check out your work at Jewish Currents. It's fascinating stuff. It is not the conventional wisdom you sometimes find in other places. Uh, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Peter Barnard, for joining the show. Thanks to my hero, Roger Goodell, for all the the joy and pleasure he gave me this weekend. I hate that guy. Oh, yeah, but well, the, over, the overtime rules suck. The overtime rules suck. Didn't you want Josh Allen to get the ball back? Oh, of course I did. Yeah. Of course. He, which, poor Josh Allen played a perfect game. Yeah, I think Goodell makes like $44 million a year. <laughs> a year. Yeah. To do what? Be like a To be a show for like cuts. the NFL owners. Yeah, I mean, to I, make them more money. Uh, like, one, yeah. To take Jerry Jones's phone calls. I'm sure that's no treat. Well, the, the one thing that the NFL did that was really smart is by getting rid of all these, you know, protecting quarterbacks and protecting the middle of the field you know, that that opened this up to have these wild finishes. I was thinking about this. I mean, there's a reason these guys are lighting things up. I mean, you know, you couldn't do that back in the day. You know, because no. the quarterback's getting hammered, like people coming across the middle. Hammered, yeah, like Vontez know. Perfect yeah. tries to literally rip your head off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not, not good. Now you can't do that. So, you know, you can score a lot more points. Yeah, made better. Yeah, made. But uh, I don't give him credit. Someone else must have been No, coaches. Yeah. That good, good people, not that schlub. Uh, okay, that's it for us this week. Talk to you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week.
They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.